Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Uh, hello? Nate, hey man, it's Luke. Oh, Luke, what's up, buddy? Hey, so like 30 years ago, right now, you and I were getting ready to leave elementary school behind and move into middle school, right? Yes. So for me, that was a time that like I stopped carrying a lunch box and started, you know, buying school lunches. And so I'm curious if that's the same for you. What sort of lunch box were you leaving behind? Do you remember what your lunch box was as a kid? Yes, I do. I'm just blanking on the name right now. Uh, no, Thundercats. Oh, my god! It was gosh. absolutely Thundercats. That's amazing. I held on to them for a while. And like, so there was the lunchbox. And then sixth grade was when I first started carrying a backpack. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. I very, very vividly remember wearing it with two straps and looking around and realizing I was a nerd and had to switch to the one strap. That's right, man. That's same with overalls back in the day. I mean, if you had both straps on your overalls, you were just oh asking God, somebody idiot. to beat you up. But <laughs> Well, mine was Fall Guy. Do you remember Fall Guy? No, what's Fall Guy? So Fall Guy was Lee Majors, and he was, get this, if this isn't a perfect setup for a show, perfect scenario, he was a Hollywood stuntman by day and a bounty hunter by night. Oh my God, I yeah. got to watch it now. What's it was it streaming the, on? I don't know that it's streaming anywhere. I've looked and looked, but... <laughs> that sounds incredible. It was the best. And I had a Fall Guy lunchbox, and I still sometimes look it up on eBay because people have this exact same lunchbox and thermos set on eBay, and it's amazing. But Except now it's like 80 bucks. Yeah, exactly that, yeah. So I'll probably never own it again, but I would if I could. I do still own a Batman lunchbox and a WWE lunchbox that... Uh, uh, come on, dude. Of, it was so. still WWF at the time. It's true. Yeah, it was. In fact, this is a WWF lunchbox. But you I know. know I know we're doing copyright infringements here, but <laughs> history has to be accurate. Well, I just got to say it in a way that the kids will understand what I'm talking about, you know. <laughs> oh, the freaking youths. All right, Nate, that's all I got for you. I'm going to go start the episode. I appreciate it. I can't wait to hear it, buddy. All right, we'll see you. See you. From Mill You Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 3, Episode 13, Record Breakers and a Ridiculous Red Beret. Today, we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, April 13th, 1991. Hello, friends, and thank you, as always, for joining me for another episode of 30 Pop. I hope you're all happy and healthy and just as excited as I am to dig into another week of early 90s audio memorabilia. I see no reason to wait, so let's get into it. Once again, this week in 1991, as with the last several and next several weeks, Mariah Carey was sitting pretty at the top of the Billboard 200 chart with her self-titled debut album, which would go on to eventually sell over 15 million copies worldwide. So impressive. The other top 10 albums this week in 1991 were at number two, CNC Music Factory with their album, Gonna Make You Sweat. Number three, Wilson Phillips, self-titled. Number four, Shake Your Money Maker by the Black Crows. 
Number five, R.E.M. with their breakout seventh album, Out of Time, which we'll discuss in detail soon. Number six, The Soul Cages by Sting. Number seven, Heart-Shaped World by Chris Isaac. Number eight, the soundtrack to Oliver Stone's Jim Morrison biopic, The Doors. Number nine, Vanilla Ices to the Extreme, which I am at this point way over covering. And number 10, Gloria Estefan's Into the Light. It's also worth mentioning MC Hammer's Please Hammer Don't Hurt Em, which dominated the charts for the majority of 1990, was enjoying its 58th week on the charts and was still barely outside the top 10 at number 14. And Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation was enjoying its 80th straight week on the chart. Again, so impressive. We also had new number one songs on each of the singles charts we follow in this show. The number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 this week in 1991 was the infectious I've Been Thinking About You by British-American dance pop band London Beat. This song came from the band's 1990 sophomore release, In the Blood, and it was massive. Although it had released almost six full months earlier as a single, it finally found its way to the top of the U.S. charts and those of at least 10 other countries worldwide. Ironically, it only ever made it to number two on the U.K. charts. I was surprised to learn that when this song released, the members of London Beat were already in their mid to late 40s. And even more surprised to learn they're still making music today, considering lead singer Jimmy Helms will be 80 this September. Another fun fact I learned about these guys, they were also the background vocalists on a few fine young cannibal songs, including Good Thing, which we covered back in the first couple of months of 35. I still don't understand how Fine Young Cannibals made it with those lead vocals. Nails on a chalkboard. But anyway, moving on. The new number one song on the hot R&B and hip-hop chart 30 years ago this week was the sultry Johnny Gill ditty, Wrap My Body Tight. This song, written by the legendary duo of Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, was the fourth single from Gill's eponymous third solo studio album, his first album recorded for Motown Records, and his first album as a proper adult, or at least as a person of legal drinking age. He recorded this album while New Edition, the legendary R&B boy band of which he was a part, was taking their first of multiple hiatuses. Hiatai. I don't know. Their first hiatus. This single isn't as memorable to me as the first couple singles off that record, but as I've mentioned more than once on this show, I'm a sucker for early 90s New Jack Swing, so this is right up my alley, and I will gladly own whatever that says about my taste in music. At the top of the hot rap chart this week was the second number one single from underappreciated British rapper Moni Love, entitled It's a Shame, My Sister. 
Not much to say about this one other than to reiterate that I maintain Moni Love was a far better MC than she ever received credit for being. Especially in an age where the rap world was still so misogynistic in not only its lyrical content, but in its industry practices. Women who found any sort of mainstream exposure in those days had to absolutely claw their way to it. I'm sure that's still the case today as there remain far more male rap artists than female in the mainstream spotlight. Hopefully, though, because of artists like Moni Love, Yo-Yo, and Queen Latifah, the trail has been at least somewhat blazed for the Cardi B's, Megan the Stallions, and Chicas of today. Number one on the Hot Country chart 30 years ago this week was the fourth of five singles off the platinum-selling 13th studio album from legendary American country band Alabama. The album, Pass It On Down. The song, Down Home. Down home. Where they know you by name and treat you like family Down home A man's good word and a handshake are on your knee Folks know If they're falling on hard times They can fall back home Those of us raised up down This was the third single from Pass It On Down to reach the number one spot in their 30th overall. And in the 30 years since, they've only had three more. I would have never admitted to liking Alabama in those days, at least not until their next single in 1992, which I couldn't resist buying. Today, I'm much more comfortable owning all the nostalgia I feel for the music these guys were making back in those days. But even still, I won't linger. In sports news this week in 1991, there were a couple of landmark moments. The first being on April 8th when the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum, the home of Major League Baseball's Oakland A's, became the first outdoor arena in the United States to ban smoking, which is just so hard to imagine now. Then on April 10th, hockey legend Wayne Gretzky amazed fans once again by breaking the record for most career playoff goals with 93. He continued breaking that record for the rest of his career and retired with an impressive 122 total career playoff goals. As I say every time he pops up on this show, there's a reason he's known as the great one. In television news 30 years ago this week, we saw the end of a kid's game show that just never quite measured up to its competition, Double Dare. The show was called Fun House, and it was hosted by serial game show MC J.D. Roth who you may not recognize by name, but I bet you'd remember him if you saw him. The show was two years behind Nickelodeon's Double Dare getting started, and two years ahead of them calling it quits. The most notable thing about the show for me, though, was that in its third and final season, the announcer was replaced by Michael Boogaloo Shrimp Chambers, best known for playing Turbo in the 1984 classics Breakin' and Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo, each of which I proudly own to this day. So, you know, if having Turbo on the show couldn't save it, there must not have been much about it worth saving. I did learn while researching it, though, that J.D. Roth went on to create the popular mid-aughts weight loss reality show, The Biggest Loser, which was far more successful than Funhouse. At the box office this week in 1991, we had a new number one film for the first of two weeks, which, in my humble opinion, reveals a bit about either the lack of quality coming out of Hollywood at the time or the public's general lack of taste. Steven Seagal's action cliché, Out for Justice. 
It's miles from civilization. Give the arm, huh? But just one subway stop from Manhattan. Hey, you want a party? Brooklyn. <laughs> they were friends. Ever since we was little. Born on these streets. One of us family. Now, after 15 years. Who would I ever thought that I would have become a cop, huh? They will play cops and robbers one more time. But this time... Richie got out of the car and just stepped up, bang. It's no game. Three of his crew were with him. Steven Seagal. I know this guy better than anybody else. I know the neighborhood better than anybody else. Out for justice. I'm gonna keep coming back until somebody remembers seeing Richie. No, you know our ways. He must be dealt with by us. Over here, Sal. This guy before you do. You know what I'm gonna do. So you still call me here like a girl. The body count's going up, Gino. I'm starting to get in a bad mood, you know? Maybe it's like a mood swing, my hormones, I don't know. In this neighborhood, someone's got to take out the garbage. Steven Seagal, out for justice. This was the third straight Seagal film to open at number one, which is just bizarre to me in light of how virtually indistinguishable they are looking back after three decades. The only real notable difference in this movie from the others is that it was the only Seagal film between 1988 and 1998 without a single explosion. Nonetheless, it lacked none of the other normal ingredients of Seagalian action, Namely, a soft-spoken detective with a mysterious scowl, bad fashion, the wrong accent, and a thirst for vengeance. Not to mention the predictable and all-too-present tough guy machismo. Ten Buck says this movie provided a real boost to the beret industry, though, and Five More says I loved it at the time. Sometimes, friends, our collective past is a little cringy. And by sometimes, I mean usually. And by a little, I mean so very. But there it is. This week in 1991. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have, and I hope you'll join me again next week for more. Until then, know this. I'm going to keep coming back until someone remembers seeing Richie. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share... Leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. 